From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out tonight. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Biden administration will give agencies more time with officials working on the transition. Agencies can now appoint people to these temporary posts through April, and they can stay in place for 120 days. GovExec reports agencies say they need more time to switch to new policies and conduct background checks. The Pentagon has new combatant command nominees. General Jacqueline Van Ovos is the new nominee to lead U.S. Transportation Command. Lieutenant General Laura Richardson was nominated to lead U.S. Southern Command. And Admiral John Aquilino was picked to lead U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. The Navy's new Project Overmatch office now has authority over more IT and tech spending. The expanded authority is meant to improve network connectivity. FedScoop reports Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday says Project Overmatch is a, quote, top priority. The latest coronavirus relief bill extends Section 3610 authority to the end of the fiscal year. The Senate voted 93 to 6 to approve the amendment, which allows the government to pay contractors who can't safely access their workplaces. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council and former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Materiel Readiness. Thanks for joining me, David. What's the latest on uh, the Section 3610 extension in the, in the relief bill? So we're delighted that the Congress has seen fit to continue the authority and to extend it to the end of fiscal year 21. As you know, Marjorie, this was originally a provision in the CARES Act last March, so a year ago uh, when the provision first came into place. And, and it has been used a whole lot since then uh, by a number of agencies, both uh, the Defense Department to some extent, to a much larger extent in, among the intelligence community agencies, and almost to an equal extent uh, in the civilian agencies, agencies ranging from uh, the Justice Department and the Homeland Security Department to the National Institutes of Health and, and the State Department. So it's had very widespread use. Much of that use, though, has been kind of down in the program level. So it hasn't really had the visibility and the kind of attention uh, that perhaps some uh, COVID, other COVID-related costs and, and the need to recover those costs have had. What has it meant um, for contractors and for the government from your perspective? So when we've discussed this with our member companies, tens of thousands of employees have had part of their costs uh, of employment covered when they particularly, so 3610 was really designed for a particular purpose. It was designed to be able to keep key contractors, skilled personnel, key workers on the payroll when two things couldn't happen. One is they could not access the facility, generally because you couldn't maintain safe work distances in them or that some other COVID-related reason. And the work was such that it couldn't be done remotely. So a huge percentage of government contractors, as well as federal civilian employees, have been able to work remotely under the pandemic. But there are a lot of work that can't be done. You know, uh, access to classified facilities and classified networks, touch labor like in a lab or in a repair facility. Those are kinds of things you can't do remotely. You know, I, I, you, you, don't, you don't want somebody putting a, a needle in for an IV in your arm from six feet away. And so these are the kinds of things that if you can't access and you can't do it remotely, but you have to keep those people on the payroll because they're essential to your success. What 3610 did is allowed companies to put those people on some kind of paid time off and allowed the government to reimburse to companies for just those costs, not for the overhead, not for the fee, just the cost of the paid time off. And it's been used for tens of thousands of workers uh, in whole or in part in the ensuing months since then. 
And, and obviously this extension would, would take you to, I guess, almost 18 months total. Um, you know, I know it's hard to predict sort of the end here, but do you think that that'll be sufficient? Uh, I mean, when do you sort of think the need for 3610 will, will no longer exist? Well, I think you point out the uncertainty that we have, and certainly we, we, we've got that across the board, right? We've made a lot of progress on vaccines, but there's also the virus itself is making progress with new variants, and we don't know the course of what that disease will look like. So the value of 3610 is it's not required to be used, it's available to be used, and it's available to be used within existing funding uh, to the extent necessary. So it's almost like it's a standby authority that you'd want to be able to call on if needed, and obviously a pandemic would be one of the ways in which it would be needed. So we would actually like to see this authority made permanent, but optional so that uh, it can be activated as necessary. That way you wouldn't have to keep re-extending it. Not only did we re-extend it, you know, from the original date of September 30th into the continuing resolution through December, but then in CR after CR, you know, we had a one week CR and then it was a weekend long CR and then another 10 day CR. And so you really don't want to use all of that time. You'd like to have something in place permanently. What we have now between now and September 30, 30th is the opportunity to put this kind of standby authority in place. Uh, if necessary, we'd like to extend it, but we'd rather see it made permanent and then available to be used as necessary by each agency across the federal government. What what form would that take? Would you like to see it in you know defense authorization bill? How would that how would that uh, play out? Well, that's a good question because, as you know, because you follow this stuff, the defense authorization bill is kind of the standard bill that passes every year but it is really for the Defense Department. So that's one avenue that could be played out. We'd like to see it extended across the federal government because as I mentioned, roughly half of the use of 3610 over the last year has been in the civilian agencies. And so that authority needs to be in place for them as well. The current extension does that, it applies government wide and, and we believe that should continue. And, and David, one hitch here I know that, that you've talked about, other, other um, associations have talked about, is that the bill doesn't actually appropriate the funds here, right? And I mean, are you confident that this reimbursement will actually happen? Well, this is the beauty of the language as it was originally intended, is it's subject to available funds. And so each program office and the contracting officers administering the contracts within those program offices have their own discretion as to what costs to cover and when to cover them. And many of those programs have issued essentially templates or guidelines for, for um, uh, companies to follow as they submit invoices with costs that would be recovered under 3610. So it's all documented separately, separate time charge numbers, separate invoices, very uh, easily subject to audit. We do expect the, those kinds of audits to cover that going forward. Uh, and and the, by leaving the discretion and the judgment up to the program office, they make the decision. So in that sense, it's worked very, very well. No new funds are needed. I would note, though, that there are a lot of costs associated with COVID-19 that can't be recovered simply through a 3610 invoice change or a time charge number. And uh, those costs have been argued and discussed widely across the, the government, um, mostly in the Defense Department. And those costs are real, and there needs to be a way of addressing those. Um, but the actual use of 3610, as it has played out, doesn't need additional funding, and we think that's a plus. And David, um, obviously this, this amendment uh, was very popular, passed very easily. Does that, um, is that heartening to you? It's very heartening to me. I think, you know, in a bill that ended up uh, passing on a 50 to 49 vote, uh, to have as much bipartisan support as, uh, as this amendment did in, in the Senate is not only heartening from a results point of view, but it's a reinforcing from the validity of the process. It, it shows and demonstrates that this is not a political question. This is a question of how the government maintains the access to the skilled workforce it needs to be able to accomplish its missions. And we'd like to continue working with them to make sure that that can take place from here on out. Thanks so much, David.
Thank you. Up next, updating legacy IT systems across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how chief information officers can leverage connections to make changes faster. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The latest pandemic relief bill includes a billion dollars for the Technology Modernization Fund. New ways to modernize legacy IT systems could change the priorities of government chief information officers. David Pounder is executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy and director of strategic engagement and partnerships at MITRE. He's also former GAO director of IT issues. He's writing about the role of the chief information officer in FCW. Thanks for being here, Dave. You write about the important CIOs can have what do you see as the sort of, what can they help accomplish? What's their role here? Well, when you really look right now, Marjorie, we have many urgent priorities when it comes to IT, you know, supply chain, cyber, legacy modernization. There's improper payments that the CIOs are going to play a large role in. And really the CIOs need to be the leaders, you know, working in, in, in hand in hand with the business leaders to tackle legacy modernizations. But there's all these chiefs within the departments and agencies Chief, you know, chief financial officers, acquisition officers. Now we have chief data officers playing a huge role. It's really important that we have alignment of the chiefs and that the the executives at these agencies are really unified to tackle the big challenges. What are you think? I mean, you name some of them, or what are the maybe the biggest challenges facing CIOs? Well, I think clearly, you know, you can start with cyber. Uh, you know, GAO's high risk list came out again. The one very disappointing thing with the high risk list is that cyber kind of slipped a bit. It was downgraded based on the five criteria that they evaluate. And then second of all, I think we've talked about this before on this show, the legacy modernization challenges are really key. TMF is a good shot in the arm. We got a billion dollars uh, to help tackle some of these priorities with cyber and the legacy challenge. But again, it's probably not gonna be enough when you really look at the magnitude of the challenges that we, that we face. That's a good kind of segue into talking about this this TMF funding TMF funding boost. Do you think it changes priorities? Do you think it, it provides some assistance here? I don't. It shouldn't change priorities. Let's hope that it really gives us a leg up on tackling those priorities. But one of the things that's really important, you know, if you look at uh, the amount of money we spend, roughly ninety to hundred billion, and eighty percent goes to legacy. We're still spending about twenty billion on new stuff, right? When you look at the federal IT budget. So a billion is important, but there's there are many challenges out there. And I, I think what's really important is agencies still need to build the business cases, working with business leaders, getting support from their CFOs, working authorization and appropriation committees on these IT budgets. And you know, these days of having, we've had relatively flat IT budgets for years. And if we're gonna truly tackle the legacy modernization challenges and all the cyber challenges, we need to get away from these flat budgets. And I think TMF is wonderful. You know, it's great that's occurring, but we really need to take some other uh, steps towards ensuring that we have adequate budgets to tackle the many priorities. In your piece, you also write about the, the federal CIO. What do you think uh, the role of, of this position should be? What, what really is the um, most important kind of task there? So a couple of things. I think it's a critical, critical role. And you look back over history, you know, the prior federal CIOs have all, all had uh, many success stories. First of all, I think the federal CIO needs to put in place the policies 
to support the, the CIOs at the departments and agencies and to really make sure that those policies are there that gives, continues to give them authority with uh, you know what was reinforced with like FATARA. The other thing that I think is really important, if you look at government-wide IT organizations, so you got the federal CIO's office with the CIO council, but you also have TTS and 18F at GSA, you have USDS out of the White House. I think it is very important that those three government-wide IT organizations are aligned on the priorities and they work together. And I'm not saying that historically they haven't, but I think there's an opportunity for those three organizations to really come together because they all provide you know, unique skill sets that are really needed to advance mission modernization and take advantage of the technology. And, and what about agency CIOs? How should they try to build maybe relationships among themselves? Well, I, you know, I think what's really important is, um, you know, first of all, starting off as, you know, being viewed as a strategic business partner. They need to get to know the business leaders and what the pain points are. And then second of all, th these are the two priority areas. That's one. And second of all, they really need to have strong relationships with the CFO because it's really about the money. And it's not to downplay the role with CISOs and acquisition officers. And we even have, you know, chief experience officers uh, now with uh, customer experience officers. And I think that's really important because as we start looking at advancing missions, all those chiefs need to align. But I think it's important that they get out of the gate quickly with the new CIOs coming in and really start with the business leaders and the CFO and build from there. It sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is really about communicating among among groups, with business leaders, all sorts of uh, kind of communication. What do you think are the potential benefits there? What can be accomplished by by improving that? Well, I just think if you look historically, Marjorie, at where we've seen successes over the years, where there's been you know CFOs and CIOs working together, I think a recent success story. I know you've highlighted this on uh, this show is uh, Karen Evans working with the CFO at DHS. There were many good things that happened there. So we can point to history where we've had these synergies with the chiefs and we actually have good outcomes and results. We can also go back and look to where there haven't been uh, such great relationships and the mission outcome advancement isn't really where it needs to be. Thanks so much. Uh, what, one, uh, one last question. Um, what will you be watching going forward on this issue? So the big thing going forward is I think uh, when you look at um, you know, there's a number of things. One is there's a lot of executive orders on, you know, there's one coming out on cybersecurity addressing solar wind supply chain. Those are going to be big things about how on how these executive orders are actually implemented. CIOs will play a large role in that. There was a uh, OMB memorandum that came out last Friday on improving payment integrity. That's another big area. So again, there's there's a lot of tasks and asks of the CIOs. And again, if we could build these relationships, it's really going to help tackle these big, urgent priorities that we have facing us. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you, Marjorie. You can find his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, when is deterrence not deterrence? Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to better communicate U.S. strategy. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
The State Department under the Trump administration emphasized the need for deterrence against Iran, but one expert says the strategy is better described as coercion. Erica Borghardt is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a senior director on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. She's writing about deterrence on the Atlantic Council website. Thanks for joining me, Erica. Let's start by talking about the difference between de deterrence and coercion. Sure, and thank you so much for having me here. Um, so deterrence and coercion are similar concepts. Um, they both sort of arose during the Cold War and are meant to address changing adversary behavior sort of short of war. Um, there are a lot of things that make them similar. They rest on the perception of the adversary. Um, for them to be successful, um, deterrent and coercive threats have to be clearly communicated. They have to affect the cost-benefit calculus of the adversary. Um, they need to have credibility. So the adversary has to believe that you have the capability and the willingness to carry them out. Um, and then they also both need to have some element of reassurance so that the target believes that if they do comply with what you're asking them to do, you won't sort of go ahead and inflict the cost on them anyway. Um, so that's all the ways in which deterrence and coercion differ, but uh, are similar, but they do differ in two critical respects. Um, the first has to do with the relationship to the status quo and the ultimate objective of these strategies. So deterrence is about preserving the status quo. You're trying to prevent someone from taking some unwanted action that they have not yet taken, whereas coercion is about changing behavior that's ongoing. Um, the second important difference has to do with the use of force. So with deterrence, if you have to use force, then by definition, it means that your deterrent threat has failed. Whereas coercion often involves both the threat and the limited application of force. And why do you think this difference is important? So it may seem like sort of an esoteric or obtuse academic debate, but it's important because both the, the success of both deterrent and coercive strategies really rests on how um, different audiences perceive them. And so if policymakers aren't using the appropriate terminology or language to describe what their strategy is, then there's a risk that um, you know, they may not be appropriate, appropriately communicated. Um, and I think the other concern is that you know, if, if we use sort of language of deterrence or sort of variants of deterrence, like restoring deterrence or reestablishing deterrence or this idea that I heard most recently that we're in a state of contested deterrence with Iran, then it sort of blinds us to thinking about why our deterrence strategy isn't really working. Because if you have to restore deterrence or if it's contested, it means that it's not quite working. And so if we want to get at a successful strategy, um, we need to be able to understand things for what they are to be able to figure out what's working and what's not and why. I thought it was interesting in your piece, you note that um, one issue might be that coercion is not considered a palatable strategy. Does that mean that, um, you know, if, they're, if, if uh, policymakers don't want to use this term, that maybe they shouldn't be using this approach? What do you think are the implications there? Yeah, so I do, you know, that's never explicitly stated, but it seems to be sort of implied by how um, we talk about our strategy. And um, I think there's this idea that coercion just isn't something that the United States does. But if you look at the historical record and at the evidence, you know, we do implement deterrent strategies, but we also implement coercion sometimes. And if we're not sort of willing to recognize the reality of what we're doing, then perhaps we should be asking ourselves sort of why we're doing it in the first place and maybe reassess the extent to which we rely on coercive strategies, both because perhaps, um, you know, we may not find them palatable and so we shouldn't be doing them. And also because coercion has a limited track record of success and carries lots of different risks like escalation risk, 
blowback and, and, and so on. You make some recommendations in your piece. What, what do you think should be done here? So I think the first thing that needs to be done is to clearly communicate our strategy. And again, not just because of some you know obscure reason, but because how we communicate strategy um, affects its likelihood of success or failure. Um, I think the second thing that needs to be done is sort of really reassess the extent to which we're relying on coercive approaches, both because we're not willing to call them what what they are, then we we should sort of think twice about doing them, and also because um, you know they've failed so often in recent history. Um, and then the final recommendation is, you know, I see a lot of this sort of permutations of deterrence that are kind of masquerading, um, masquerading as deterrence, but are really policies of coercion coming out of a lot of senior uh, military leaders, and you know. These, especially at the most senior level, feel graded above. Um, these leaders are steeped in sort of education about strategic concepts throughout, you know, their professional military education experiences. And so, you know, this should really drive us to re-examine those curricula and make sure that we are appropriately educating senior leaders, both in the military and outside of the military, about sort of what these concepts mean and what their historical legacy is and the conditions under which they work or don't. And for this kind of communication recommendation, does this apply to to the Pentagon, to Congress, to um, you know the White House, or are you making it is it more targeted toward military leaders specifically? No, I, certainly not more targeted to one constituency versus another. I think that you know particularly when it comes to strategies that rest on affecting the perception of an ad adversary, as well as other audiences like the domestic public, allies and partners. It's important that all elements of the U.S. government sort of get on the same page about how they communicate strategy and, and understand what the implications of terminology are. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.